Well, good morning. So who noticed something different as they drove into the car park today? Mulch, yeah? Notice it all being cut back? Did everyone notice? Because to tell you the truth, there was a working bee last year that I was at a conference for and I didn't attend. And um, when I drove in and came in, I came upstairs and Phil said, did you see all the work that we did? And I'm like, yeah, but I really hadn't. So I need to point out on behalf for the 15 people that were here yesterday working really hard, I hope you notice on your way out the beautiful gardens. Well, really, it's more just the lack of gardens because the trees got a bit overwhelming. Um, but, you know, actually, the more we pruned away, I wasn't the actual one doing the pruning, but chopped away at the trees, the more there seemed to be. And there's just way more than we actually imagined. It got a little bit out of control. Actually, I'm going to tell a funny story. Um, Amy was doing a beautiful job pruning. Where is Amy? Is she here? <laughs> she's, she's coming, guys. Amy did this beautiful job pruning back this like hedge, and it looked really lovely. And then after about, I don't know, 10 minutes or something, she actually realized that it had already been chopped down. It wasn't even attached to anything. It was just sitting in the garden. <laughs> yeah, that was a good use of time. Thanks, Amy. <laughs> but everyone that was here yesterday worked really hard and looks great, and we got a lot of jobs done that would otherwise cost a lot of money. And you know what else? Because we were doing it together, we had fun. It was a lot of fun. Did everyone have fun? Anyone here yesterday that didn't have fun? <laughs> Excellent. There was lots of other things done too. The um, car park's been gurneyed out and it's nice and clean and everything now. Lots of good jobs done. But actually, sometimes when you're in the midst of something, it can seem a little bit out of control. Not a lot different to life. Whoever gets to, to wake up in the morning and just think about their day and they feel like things are just a little bit out of control. Their to-do list is way longer than the amount of hours they have in the day. Anyone ever feel like that? Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes it seems that the pace of life is just so rapid that it's hard to even hang on. It's hard to even keep up. One day blends into another day and sometimes we just want to scream, stop. At least that's my experience sometimes. And it's not just the speed, but it's the unknowns. It's the obstacles that we face, those speed bumps that get in the way. Some things are big and some things are small, but they add up over time. And it's hard to feel in control. And so often, life can seem a little bit about survival. And this morning, we're reading in the scripture, in the first book of Philippians, that life should be about joy. And for some days, I have to admit, joy is the last thing on my mind. I am just hanging on for survival. Let's just keep going. But the book of Philippians is an encouraging book. In fact, it's a lot of people's favorite book. We put out a preaching survey a little while ago and asked for suggestions as to what we might preach on. And Philippians was one of those things that came up a number of times. So if you put it down here, we're preaching on it. But the truth is we'd already done this part of the plan. So it's just coincidence or a God incidence, if you like. But Philippians is popular because it does lift our spirits. But I don't know, sometimes when I read Philippians, I feel a bit guilty because I feel like Paul, who's on house arrest, two years he'd been in prison, and here he is full of joy, and I get a flat tire and I lose my joy. <laughs> but it's not meant to make us feel guilty. This book is supposed to inspire us. And some of you have already looked a couple of weeks in your life groups into this amazing book. And um, it's probably the first time that I actually went to my life group you know, two weeks ago and looked at this passage before I started preparing at it for a sermon. And it was good to, to hear those things that resonated with the group. And this letter is a letter from Paul, as I said, he's in house arrest, on house arrest. And it's a letter that flows out of his heart. 
Some of the books like Romans, which was also written by Paul, you start reading and you've got to really think because it's actually like arguing logic and you get a bit confused and it's like about head knowledge. Whereas this letter is all about the heart. It's all about his feelings, his passion, his care, his love for the Philippians. And unlike most of his other letters, he's not writing to correct an issue. He's not trying to give them a little bit of a slap across the wrist and say you've got something wrong. He's not saying you're preaching the wrong thing and try to draw them back into line. He's actually just writing to them to say, you know what? I'm so thankful for you. You're doing such a great job. Keep going because I know God's not finished with you yet. And I hope over the next four weeks, that's the message that you receive. Keep going. You're doing such a good job. People are thankful that you're alive and that you're here and that you're serving. Keep persevering. So we've titled this series, The Gospel Changes Everything. The good news about Jesus changes everything. This is both spoken of directly by Paul in this, in this um, book, Philippians, but it's also just implied by his life and the life of this young church that he's writing to. It deals with the complexity of life, but it says as people that have received Jesus, as people that know Jesus and travel with Jesus, we can and we should, in fact, experience joy because everything should be different about our lives. And so Philippians really helps us wrestle with that question, how is it possible to sustain this joy in the midst of life when it can seem out of control, when it can seem so complex? How do I keep hold of joy? Well, where does joy begin? Well, Paul starts in a great place in Philippians 1 by telling us basically that joy begins and is founded on relationship. That's not really surprising, is it? When you think about moments that bring you joy, I'm sure many of you would think about a cup of coffee with a friend or a family meal together. They can be stressful too, but ultimately they can bring joy. You think of times with people. That's one of the keys Paul is saying to a, to a joyful life is relationships. Most of you would have people that have walked with you in tough seasons. And for the Philippians and Paul, they'd gone through so many things together. They'd gone through riots, beatings, him being in jail, poverty, famine, hardship. And yet the warmth of the relationship is so evident in this letter. They developed a deep relationship that had sustained them, sustained them through all this adversity. And, you know, I think that's one problem that's evident in so many churches today. Over time, that which was central in that early church, that which was central was relationships, it's become a little bit secondary. Other good things, hear me, other good, important things that the church should be doing has led us to de-emphasize relationships, I think. Not us as so much as a church, but I'm talking about the wider church. But ultimately, that's what church is about. It's not so much about buildings, budgets, boards. It's not even so much about programs or sitting in rows at an event. But it's about eating together around the table, serving together, supporting one another, building relationships over time. Don't get me wrong, and I think this quote's going to come up now. The church can and should be about more than relationships. We're not just here, and we remind you all the time, to sit and to chat with one another, looking at just after ourselves. But it can't be or do anything greater unless relationships are at its core. The church is about gathering of God's people and the spreading of God's people once they're encouraged. We need relationships to 
to sustain us, don't we? We need them to encourage us. We need them, whether we like it or not, to keep us accountable. So how do we sustain them or how do we get them and how do we better invest in them once we've developed these relationships? Well, I think Paul tells us three things this morning. He tells us more than three things, but I think our brains can only handle three things. So I think Paul tells us, and we're just going to look at the scripture bit by bit, Paul tells us that we need to partner together. Relations are built when relationships are built when we partner together, when we do things together for a common purpose. Let's read from verse 3. Paul says, Every time I think of you, I give thanks to my God. I always pray for you, and I make my requests with a heart full of joy because you have been my partners in spreading the good news about Christ from the first time you heard it until now. And I am sure that God who began the good work within you will continue his work until it is finally finished on that day when Christ Jesus comes back again. He'd first heard, or they'd first heard this phrase, it was sometime between 48 and 51 AD, and Paul had encountered a businesswoman named Lydia. I referred to her the other day, and she was on the shores of a river just outside of Philippi. And God opened her heart, and she embraced the gospel. And for her, the gospel really did change everything. But it didn't just change for her. That, that exploded into the existence of this church. And you can read about it in Acts chapter 16. And then about 10 years later, Paul is imprisoned. And here he is writing back to this church 10 years later saying, I am thankful to God when I remember you. I am thankful because you have been my partners. Not I'm just thankful because you send me a card every now and then or I'm thankful that you turned up and sat in the seat at the church that I started. But you were my partners or you have been my partners. And it's a continuing phrase. They're still his partners. Because you see, a partnership is a two-sided relationship. They contributed to Paul's life and Paul contributed to their life in terms of faith, yes, but also in terms of working together, financially supporting one another, being hospitable to one another, praying for one another. When people serve God together, there is just so much benefit. Not only do we individually benefit when we serve with others, not only does ministry get done because we're better together, but actually relationships develop when we serve with other people. Relationships that will support us while God does his work in us, which is sometimes a hard work. Paul tells his friends in verse 6, I'm sure that God who began the good work within you will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus comes back. You know, when I think about this verse, I think of, this is one of my favorite verses. And um, I remember as a child traveling in Sydney, we lived in one part of Sydney and we traveled what seemed like a long way. Now in hindsight, it probably wasn't that far to see my grandmothers who lived in Waruna Village. The Salvation Army is Waruna Village. And um, we'd travel down a certain highway and there was just, we'd go on a Saturday and so there was just always construction work. There'd be signs up saying highway under construction. And over time that road, there were fixed potholes, they widened the road, they put toll booths in. There was all sorts of things that happened to develop this road. And you know what? I still travel on that road and I still feel like it is always under construction. Everyone have, have a similar road that they travel on? Always under instruction, always construction, always improving, fixing up the little things, widening it to make it more efficient for the future. There was always something going on. They never really finished working on it. 
I was going to use the example this morning, which I thought was going to be a great example, and I looked it, looked it up, and I found out it was a myth. But did you know, I was taught as a kid that the Harbour Bridge was continually being painted, that they'd start at one side and they'd paint it to the other end, and by the time they got to the other end, it was ready to start painting it again at the beginning. Well, apparently that's a myth. Everything on the internet says it's a myth. It's not true. But did you know that it does cost $20 million a year to maintain the Harbour Bridge? $20 million a year. It's still continually under improvement. And that's what Paul is saying about our lives. God's done a good work. But actually, over time, he's probably mended a few potholes. He's widened it a bit. He's, he's increased our capability to, to face the next season. There's never a time where God's going to stop working on us because he loves us and cares about us and wants to use us in his service. So there's always something going on. When he's finished one part, it's time to start working on another. And Paul encourages his friends. He says, don't lose heart. This is normal. This is what God does because God loves you. And you know what? We do it together is what Paul is saying. We know that God's never going to quit on us. And even if we feel a bit discouraged at times or a bit like, God, I just wish you were done, there's people there to partner with us as God does his work. As we encourage people, as we allow people to encourage us that actually it's worth persevering until the day that God is complete. I'm also always encouraged by the way this verse is put. Paul em Paul's emphasis, if you have a look, is on the fact that God is the one who began the work. We didn't find God, he found us. We didn't first start changing our lives, he met us and started changing our lives. 1 John 4.10 tells us that God loved us first. Romans 5.8 tells us that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. In Luke 15, the shepherd initi initiates the search for the wayward sheep. It's not the sheep that thinks, oh, I've got to find my way back to God, but the shepherd goes out and he loves that sheep and so he looks relentlessly for that sheep. Do you see the recurring theme? God is the one that does the work and God is the one that will finish the work in us. How encouraging is that this morning? But the way God designed us to get through this continual construction is within a community, with people who love us, who partner with us in deep relationships with each other, spurring each other on, reminding each other that God's not finished with us. So relationships develop when we partner together, when we're there for one another. And you know, deep relationships also develop when we suffer together. Paul goes on in verse 7. It is right that I should feel as I do about all of you, for you have a very special place in my heart. We have shared together the blessing of God, both when I was in prison and when I was out, defending the truth and telling others the good news. God knows how much I love you and long for you with the tender compassion of Christ Jesus. They haven't just partnered together, they've shared together. There's a depth. They've shared Lots of tears, lots of suffering, lots of sadness. You know, when your association with someone costs you something, you know you have a genuine relationship. It was dangerous to be friends with Paul. It was dangerous. But the Philippians treated his misfortunes as their own. Do you have some deep relationships that cost you something? 
I have quite a few friends who I would do anything for. And one of these friends, last January, I even, you know, took the, took the cost, sacrificed two weeks of my life and flew to New York with her because she needed to go to immigration and visa interviews. And so I suffered it out in New York. I went ice skating in Central Park and I, um, you know, saw Billy Joel at Madison Square Garden. It was just the toughest experience. But seriously, <laughs> there have been friends that have, have caused, not caused me, but that have resulted in me experiencing lots of sacrifice of time, heartache, money, tears, emotional anguish as I've journeyed through them with, with cancer, divorce, grief, family members' suicide, other big changes. And in doing so, I've deepened relationships to a point that I can't even really describe how I feel about them. I hope you've all got some friends like that. I hope by the end of this sermon, you're, you're encouraged to seek out and to develop some friends like that. Paul, Paul's language here in verse 7, commentators that I read this week said, is some of the warmest, most imaginative and most endearing words Paul ever wrote to a group of believers. Paul tells them that wherever he went, he carried them in his heart. He wouldn't ever forget the imprisonment, the late night worship service, when the chains fell off, the, the earthquake that broke him and Silas free. He would never forget the evangelistic service where the jail warden and his whole family gave their hearts to Jesus. They committed their lives to be followers of Christ. They'd, he'd done so much together. These verses expressed a tenderness and intense love. Have a look at it in the message. These verses were, were quite... Um, when we read them in Life Group a couple of weeks ago with my, the girls I meet with, we were kind of blown away by this message paraphrase and how beautifully this, this, phrase, this phrase is put. It's not at all fanciful for me to think about you this way. My prayers and hopes have deep roots in reality. You have, after all, stuck with me all the way from the time I was thrown in jail, put on trial, and came out of it in one piece. All along you have experienced with me the most generous help from God. He knows how much I love you and miss you these days. Sometimes I think I feel as strongly about you as Christ does. He compares his love and his longing for these people to the, to the, the way that Christ feels about him. He wants them to know he can hardly express in words how much they mean to him. Paul wasn't embarrassed to tell them how much they meant to him. And I think in the same way, we probably need to get better at communicating that with people, don't we? We need to be able to tell others how much they mean to us, how, how inspiring they are to us, how supportive they are to us. It deepens relationships. It makes people feel valued. When trouble hits, trouble hit, some friends do go into hiding, and we all know that, don't we? But we do need people that will walk with us. But just as much, we need to be people who will walk with other people. We need to be people who will say, no matter what you're going through, I'm committed to you. Have you made that investment of your time, your money, your emotion? Are you prepared to? Are you prepared to pray and say, God, who is it that you want me to support in this way? Perhaps it can begin today by asking someone for a cup of coffee and listening to their story. Perhaps the best investment we can make, Paul reminds us as he finishes this section, in any relationship is to pray. Verse 9 to 11. 
This is also from the message. So this is my prayer, that your love will flourish and that you will not only love much, but well. Learn to love appropriately. You need to use your head and test your feelings so that your love is sincere and intelligent, not sentimental gush. Live a lover's life, circumspect and exemplary, a life Jesus will be proud of, bountiful in fruits from the soul, making Jesus Christ attractive to all, getting everyone involved in the glory and praise of God. What a beautiful prayer. What a beautiful prayer. Paul gives us a powerful look in these three verses as to how we can pray for one another, how we can pray for our friends, how we can pray for our family, how we can pray for people that don't yet know this Jesus. Paul prays that they would abound in love, knowledge, depth of insight, discernment, purity, blamelessness, another version tells us. It was not their love for each other that he was praying would increase, although I'm sure he wanted that, but it was their love for God that he wanted to abound. He wanted them to have a deeper love for God so they'd be able to endure more because he knew there was much more construction ahead happening. He wanted them to have a, a, um, a wider love for God so that they'd be able to embrace the, the things that came their way for the kingdom of God. He wanted them to have a fuller love so that they would risk more for the sake of being obedient and doing his will. Their love for God was already evident in their life. As I said, he wasn't correcting them. He was saying, see there what you're doing? I want it to abound even more. And Paul prayed that their love would increase. You know our love never reaches saturation point. Even the oldest person here who's been loving forever, you can love more. That's the gift of Jesus. We never get to the place where we're like, enough love already. Paul wasn't praying for his friends, as we might have a temptation to do, that their life would instantly get better. Instead, he was praying that they'd be more inspired by the love of God, that it would cause them to be, to be different. He was not talking, we're reminded, about an emotional, ecstatic, uncontrolled kind of love. He was talking about the kind of love which would cause them to know more about God and so would give them the mind and the heart of God. He wanted them to have a fuller experience of God. I, 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 we questioned that phrase when I studied this in our life group. What does it mean not just to love more, but to love better, to love well? And as I read more about that over this last week, um, what the commentators bring out those words, the, the words that are knowledge and discernment. And the Greek word for knowledge here refers to knowledge gained from personal experience. It's something that's learned because you've encountered something. And the word here for discernment means the ability to apply knowledge in personal experience to the practical details of living. So in other words, it's not knowledge that's gained from a book. It's not knowledge because we're born clever but actually by the ability to learn from our circumstances and to apply it to our circumstances in the future. Our love, Paul is saying, needs the guidance of knowledge and a deep insight. Otherwise, we're going to end up loving things we ought not to love and we're going to enter into relationships that aren't good for us. Because not every relationship is a good relationship. Not every choice is a good choice. Not every friendship is good for us. Not every job is a wise career move. Not every roommate is a healthy choice. Not every purchase is a wise use of our money. There are so many choices we make, and Paul is praying that they would know God's love and that they would discern what is best. 
Philippians 1.10. I think I've got it here in a few translations. So that you may discern what is best. Another translation says so that you use your head and test your feelings so that your love is sincere and intelligent, not sentimental gush. The Knox translates it this way. It says that you may learn to prize what is of value. The NLT says, I want you to understand what really matters. That's an excellent translation because that Greek word for discern means to test, it's the same sort of word they use to test metals, to work out what's valuable and what's not. In this journey of life that we're going through with friends to partner with us and to suffer, what's valuable and what's a waste of our time? What's valuable to the kingdom and what is selfish to talk about our last series? There's gold. And then there's fool's gold. Fool's gold looks like gold to the naked eye, but it isn't. It's not worth anything. And that's why Paul prays that the Philippians would have such love and such insight that they would continually make wise choices in life. He prayed that they wouldn't be satisfied with the way things were, wouldn't be satisfied just to love where they were now, but that they would push on to spiritual excellence, one version says. You know, we need to learn to discern when we're under pressure and make good choices. But I think this letter is actually encouraging us to pray for others that they would do that. And we're going to have a time, and I'm going to encourage you this morning to pray. Maybe God's convicting you about some choices that you need to make and you need to pray for yourself. And I would love you to do that this morning. But I felt when I was preparing this that God wanted us to spend some time to pray for others, to pray for our friends, to pray for those in our family who are struggling, pray that they would make wise choices, that they would learn to discern under pressure what is best, knowing God's love for them. Can we just put back up verses 9 to 11? It's a couple of slides before. This is my prayer, that your love will flourish and that you'll not only love much, but love well. And the prayer goes on. So just we're going to take a few moments before we even sing. And if you want to keep your eyes open and read that prayer and have some people in mind. Maybe you'd like to come and you'd like to kneel at the mercy seat this morning. Not so much just for yourself, but because you love someone so much, you want to know how best to help them this morning. You want God to move in their life. Come and seek God on their behalf this morning as you pray for them. Let's take a few moments. You can pray where you are. You can pray at the mercy seat. And in a moment, we're going to sing that beautiful song again, Power of Your Love. God, you know the people on our hearts this morning, the people that we're praying for, for those of us who 
would love to develop a support network, who would love to develop a group of people who we suffer with, who we partner with, who we pray with, God. I pray that you'll help them to be bold, help them to reach out, help them to identify people that you would have them do this journey of life with. For those who have people on their hearts today because they've travelled closely with people and they almost maybe don't know what else to do for them. Maybe some of us are parents and we want to pray this for our children because they're getting to the age where we have to let them make their own choices, God. We pray for all those people that they will know your love and that it will flourish in them. That they'll learn not just to love much, but to love well, to love with discernment and knowledge. God, we pray that those people that are close to us today, those people that you want us to reach out to, will learn to use their head to test their feelings so that love is sincere. God, help us, as well as those we partner with, to live lives that are a great example of followers of Jesus Christ. We know your word tells us that by the way we love each other, the world will know that we're your disciples. So help us to love one another better. Show us practical ways that we can love. Those in our life group, those who journey with us, help us to make room for more people in our lives to love. God, reveal yourself to us and to those who we love today. Help us to know more about your love and the difference that it makes because we really do know that it changes everything. In Jesus' name, amen.